Can I get you to turn with me uh, either in your Bibles or on your device or on your order of service uh, to Matthew chapter 15, looking at verses 21 to 39. There is also a uh, sermon outline in your order of service uh, if you want to, to follow that as well. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father, we thank you that you speak to us by your Spirit through your Word and that you've been speaking to us even as your Word was read. And we pray now that as we come to consider this passage, you will continue to do that, and that your Spirit point us to Jesus, that we might approach him rightly uh, and have hearts that are hearts like his. And so we commit this time to you, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a couple went for a meal at a Chinese restaurant, and they ordered something from the menu called Chicken Surprise. Right, the waiter brought the food. Uh, it was served in a pot with an iron lid. And just as the wife was about to open the lid to take out the food, Lid starts rising by itself. And she sees these two little beady eyes looking around. And then the lid goes down again. And then she calls her husband and tells him, look in the pot. And just as the husband about to open the lid, starts rising by itself. And he sees these two little bird eyes peeping at him. And then the lid goes down again. And he calls the waiter, what's going on here? And the waiter says to him, what did you order? He said, we ordered chicken surprise. Ah, so sorry, the waiter says. I brought you Peking duck. If you don't get it, ask the person beside you afterwards, right? As you read the Bible, sometimes you come across things that you don't expect, right? And our passage today is, is one of them. Uh, it's a passage that feels a little bit strange. Uh, it's not what you expect to see here. We have, look, first of all, a, a report about an interaction of Jesus, which seems initially to be out of character for him. And then we have an account of healings and a feeding miracle that seems too familiar, but repetitious, in fact, uh, if we've been following uh, Matthew's gospel uh, up to now. So when we come to things we don't expect to see in the scriptures, puzzles like this, it's worth asking very, very carefully about them. Asking what Matthew, and indeed God the Holy Spirit, is telling us through them, and why he put them right here. Uh, before we look at them, though, let me just remind you the last thing that Matthew told us, uh, which we looked at last week, which is about uncleanness from the heart. Remember the Pharisees were unnecessarily picky about washing hands so they wouldn't get ritually unclean? Uh, but Jesus taught them the, the real uncleanness, that, 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 that the ritual, Old Testament ritual uncleanness pointing actually comes from a sinful heart. Out of the heart, Jesus says, comes evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual immorality and theft and false witness and slander. Those are what defile a person, not eating with unwashed hands. Matthew doesn't tell us here how heart can be cleaned. In fact, he doesn't even mention the theme of uncleanness in today's passage. But what he does do is show us this surprising interaction Jesus has with someone whom the Jews would have considered unclean. And as we look at the way she interacted with Jesus, we come to realize the right way to approach him. And if we approach him that way, we will actually find ourselves cleansed from that real uncleanness, that defilement of sin in our hearts. So let's look at that first surprising interaction. All right, you remember in our passage last week, Jesus is up north uh, in the area of Galilee. Uh, he just clashed with the religious leaders who had come from Jerusalem, so he's north. And now in verse 21, he withdraws even further north uh, to the area of Tyre and Sidon, which is Gentile territory. And there he meets this, this woman uh, who is a Gentile. That is, she's not a Jew. 
Uh, in verse 22, in fact, it says that she was a Canaanite. The Canaanites were the old enemies of Israel. Right? Definitely not a part uh, of the people of God. And she was a woman who had a problem. Her, her daughter, uh, she, she knows it, was demonized, caught up by an evil spirit who, who dominated her life and, and made her miserable. And this woman had obviously heard about Jesus. For she comes to him and she cries out in verse 22, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Now, when she calls Jesus Lord, it could be a title of great respect. But in the Old Testament, it's also a word for God, for Yahweh. In the Psalms, God's people often cry, Have mercy on me, O Lord, or be gracious to me, O Lord. And used that way, it's only used of him. And so the woman calls to Jesus the way the Old Testament people call to God. Furthermore, she recognizes Jesus as the son of David. And since David was the greatest king of Israel, she's recognizing Jesus as Israel's rightful king. The one that God has been promising to his people. And yet, she was not one of his people. She knows she has no demand on him. She can't order him to do anything. She can only ask him, throw herself at his mercy. She cries out to him, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. But Jesus doesn't answer her. Not even a word. It might seem like he's ignoring her. But she persists in her plea again and again. She cries out to him, so much so that the disciples beg Jesus to do something about it. At the end of verse 23, they say, send her away, for she's crying out after us. But he doesn't do that either. Instead, he speaks to her. And he explains the reason for his reticence. Verse 24, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As far as God's salvation plan goes, salvation was first meant to go to Israel. And then from Israel, it would spread and the Gentiles be blessed as well. The Gentile mission will come. But it's not time for it yet. It was Israel's turn at the moment. And so Jesus was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. That may be so, but it didn't stop the Canaanite woman. Instead of turning around and going away, she comes right up to him. Again, not in a demanding way or in a threatening way, but, but in a humble way. In the posture of a beggar. She kneels before him. And she simply says in verse 25, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. But Jesus is still firm. His answer in verse 26 is, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. I imagine you're on the outside stalls with your family or extended family or friends with children, and there you're sitting around the table, you're eating, and then you see some stray dogs wandering in the area. So what do you do? Well, of course, what you do is you look for the youngest child, you take the plate of food that's in front of him, and you put it on the floor for the stray dogs, right? No, of course not. Jesus states the obvious, not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. It wouldn't have been right to change the direction of his ministry and make it a ministry to the Gentiles. God had made promises to the Jews, promises that he would keep through Jesus. And so to disregard that and to go to the Gentiles instead would have been wrong. And Jesus is not about to do that. But the woman speaks to him a third time. 
She says in verse 27, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Not asking you to change God's plan for saving the Jews. Not asking you to stop your work for them. Not asking you to stray from your mission. Not asking for the main meal. I'm just asking for the scraps. Just a one-off release for my daughter. And this time, Jesus grants her request. And not only that, he praises her highly. He says in verse 28, Oh woman, great is your faith. Great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Now friends, we mustn't misunderstand our Lord's intentions in this passage. Jesus had a job to do. He was meant to reach the Jews. He did not change his mission plan, and yet that did not stop him from being compassionate. He healed the woman's daughter when she came to him in faith. But only after it was made clear, very, very clear, the circumstances under which he was doing it. He only helped this Gentile after primarily, after firmly establishing that his primary mission was to the Jews. So there's no room for misunderstanding later. And then he does it. Now, once this principle is established, he shows his compassion again in different ways. In our two surprising repetitions. And look at the first one, verse 29 to 30. Uh, Jesus goes from there, he walks beside the Sea of Galilee, goes up on a mountain, a great crowd comes to him, bring the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, he heals them all, and they saw the mute, the, the crowd wonder, that they, they, they see the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they glorify the God of Israel. Now, this kind of thing happened before, isn't it? See, a number of times in Matthew's Gospel where, where Jesus heals people. But the kind of language that Matthew uses here, he's already used back in Matthew 11 when Jesus describes his ministry to the disciples of John the Baptist. Remember what he said? The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached here. We've already seen, back when we're looking at Matthew 11, we've already seen from Isaiah 35 that that's, that's the kind of thing that happens when, when God comes to save and rule his people. Matthew's already made his point there. He's already shown us that. So he could have just said, like he does elsewhere, Jesus healed many people. Enough, Jacob. Why does he do this all over again? All those details again. And then look at the next few verses, verse 32 to 38. Jesus calls the disciples, says, I compassion on this crowd. They've been with me three days. They've got nothing to eat. I don't want to send them away hungry. And they go, well, enough, where to get enough bread to feed them here? He says, how many loaves do you have? Seven and a few fish. Puts them on the guts and the seal on the ground. Takes those seven loaves and fish. Gives thanks, he breaks them, he gives them to the disciples. The disciples give to the crowd. They all eat and are satisfied, and they've got seven baskets left over. And those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. Sound familiar? Should be, right? Back in Matthew 14, that's only one chapter before this, we read about Jesus feeding a group of 5,000 Jews in a very similar way. It's not the same incident. There are a number of significant differences, but there are many similarities. So why does Matthew go to all these details again about the feeding? I could have just said, oh yeah, Jesus fed another multitude like he did before. Well, there are two hints in this passage. First of all, notice that the people who were healed and those who saw them, what did they do at the end of verse 31? 
they glorified the God of Israel. Um, there's one more row right down the front here. If you come down, uh, if you come down this this side, and you come in here. There's there's one more row here. Yeah. Okay. They glorified the God of Israel. Right. Elsewhere, when Jesus does miracles, it just says that the people praised God. But here, Matthew stresses it is the God of Israel that he prayed. Now, why would Matthew put it that way? It doesn't make sense. Unless, of course, unless, of course, there was something unusual or significant about the fact that these people were praising Israel's God. Does that make sense? And if so, it probably means that like the Canaanite woman, these people were Gentiles. There's another hint, though we probably don't normally see it. Uh, the Greek word for basket that Matthew uses in the passage about feeding the 4,000 in Matthew 15 is different from the word that he uses here. Uh, 5,000 in Matthew 15 is different from the, the word that he uses for the 4,000 here. Here it's a general word for basket, while in the earlier feeding, it's the word is used for the kind of basket that the Jews use. The first feeding is definitely a Jewish crowd. But then, it seems like this feeding is a feeding either of Gentiles or a mixed crowd. Now, are we reading Matthew's clues correctly? Well, for confirmation, uh, because we don't want to get it wrong, we could, we could sneak a look at another gospel, right? Uh, we're not going to read Matthew, Mark into Matthew, but, but, but we've already got these clues from Matthew. We just want to check and see if we're reading it rightly. And we go to Mark, and Mark confirms that Jesus was in a Gentile part of Galilee. So we've understood Matthew's clues correctly. These guys are Gentiles, or at least many of them are. So what's the significance well, think about this in light of the Old Testament. Just as Jesus performed those healing miracles among the Jews, now he does it among the Gentiles. The mute spoke, the crippled are made well, the lame walk, the blind are given their sight. In Isaiah 35, these are the blessings to Israel when the Messiah comes. But now here, they are shared with the Gentiles as well. In Isaiah 25, God had promised that he would feed his people an eternal banquet on the last day. Heaven there is pictured as a party, a great feast on a mountain, where God is the host and all his people are the guests. And at that feast, God would swallow up death forever. He will wipe away every tear from the eyes of his people, remove the people's disgrace from the eyes of all people, and remove his people's disgrace from the earth. And Jesus in our passage goes up on his mountain miraculously feeds all these people. It's a, it's a foreshadowing, a hint, a picture of that final feast. But as Jesus first fed that multitude of Jews in chapter 14, now in chapter 15, there are Gentiles as well. For at the final feast, there will be Jew and Gentile. People from every tribe and language and land will be in, will be in heaven gathered around God for that great feast to be his people forever. And this feeding of Gentiles on the mountain is a foretaste, a sign, a preview of that last day. Now after this incident, Jesus goes straight back to the Jews, as is God's plan. And the rest of his earthly ministry is primarily among the Jews. These things are still crumbs. But what great crumbs they are for the Gentiles. Well, they foreshadow that time when the kingdom is open to the Gentiles as God had always planned it would be.
and the nations would take their place, not as dogs waiting for crumbs, but with children at the table, and would bring glory to the God of Israel. So what do we learn from this passage? Let me suggest seven things. The first thing we see here is a model for saving faith, a model for saving faith. You remember, the healings of Jesus are pictures, small pictures of the big healing, that the great salvation that he will win on the cross that comes into effect when he comes again and puts everything right. And the way that the people are, who, are, who are healed approach, in the Gospels are approach Jesus models for us how to approach Jesus for this bigger salvation. At the end of the incident, Jesus says to the woman, great is your faith. Well, salvation is by faith. And he says, great is your faith. It means we should look at this woman, right, as a model for the kind of faith we should have. So what is it here about her faith that is meant to be a model for us, that is being held up for us? Well, first of all, this woman comes to Jesus in her need. Her faith is in Jesus. The kind of faith that saves us is faith in Jesus. She treats Jesus as God. She acknowledges him as king. Because the kind of faith that saves us is faith in Jesus as God and king. She recognizes her condition. She's a Gentile who has no demands on Israel's king. And we saw from last week our condition. We have hearts that are unclean, that are defiled, which is why we do things that are sinful. Can't fix ourselves by doing things externally. Natural condition is that we are sinners with no demands on God. The kind of faith that saves us is a faith that recognizes our condition. Another thing about this woman's faith is that she, she doesn't come to Jesus and say, look, I deserve to have you heal my daughter because I've done this or that. She doesn't say, if you heal my daughter, I will give you this or that. She just kneels before him and pleads for his help. And that is the kind of faith that will save us. Faith that comes to Jesus empty-handed and relies on his mercy alone. Faith in Jesus as God and King. Faith that acknowledges our natural condition as sinners. Faith that simply and humbly comes to Jesus and pleads for his help. That is the nature of saving faith. When we come to Jesus with that kind of faith, he washes our sinful hearts. Is that the kind of faith you have in Jesus? The second thing to learn here is something for you if you have not yet put your faith in Jesus. If you're someone here today, we are so happy that you've come. You haven't put your faith in Jesus? Well, let me say that like the Canaanite woman, you don't have the promises of God. You have no guarantee that God will hear you, no promise that he will save you, no assurance of his forgiveness. But if you want that, if you want God to extend his mercy to you, then you do what this Canaanite woman did. Throw yourself at the mercy of Jesus. Call out to him as Lord and King. Ask him to save you, to help you, to rescue you from sin and Satan and death and hell. Beg him for mercy. And he will hear your prayer. And like the other Gentiles who came in, he will make you a part of his kingdom. The third thing we learned here, and this is for believers, is the posture for prayer. 
This Canaanite woman never demanded. She never claimed. She never accused. She begged. And that, friends, is the posture with which we come to God. We don't come as his judge. We don't come demanding of him, telling him what to do. We don't come, we don't come to him as if he's some kind of celestial slot machine. You do this, you do this, you don't, don't, don't. We come to him like this Canaanite woman, imploring him for mercy, asking him for help, knowing our place. Sometimes it's hard for us because, you know, we human beings are arrogant. Lah. But the only right way to come is as creatures and sinners before a holy God who deserve his judgment. Though there is one difference lah, between us and the Canaanite woman, and the difference is this. We can come with confidence. For unlike the Canaanite woman, we have received the promises of God. We know by faith that we are part of the people of God. We know that we've been washed clean, forgiven through the death of his son. We know that God has promised to hear us when we come to him through Jesus. But we also know that even that is it's not because of us, but because of the grace and kindness of God to us. And so we must continue to be as humble as the Canaanite woman, yet as confident as a child who comes to her father, who loves her and accepts her. Fourthly, we see here that Jesus listens and cares. It might have seemed to the Canaanite woman at first that Jesus was trying to fob her off, just trying to get rid of her like the disciples were. But he wasn't. He was, he was giving her an opportunity to express her faith. And she most certainly did. And he granted her request. And friends, sometimes it's a bit like that with us as well, isn't it? Do you ever find yourself asking Jesus for something, even begging him, because it's something good, something important, and it feels like he's not listening. Sometimes it might even feel like he's just trying to fob you off. Sometimes we, we think he's trying to get rid of us because there's, there's more important people out there. But friends, that's not the case. He loves us and is filled with compassion for our need. If we throw ourselves at his mercy, we come before him in helplessness and humility, trusting him as God and King. He, he, he will hear our cries for help. He may not answer straight away. may lead us to, may hang on because he wants us to express faith. And when he grants our requests in a way that is best for us and according to his will, not necessarily what we say, but he will give us abundantly more than what we can ask or imagine. Jesus hears, Jesus cares. Praying does make a difference. We need to keep on praying and not give up. The next thing we learn here is how God uses the most unlikely people. Jesus' decision to foreshadow the incoming of the Gentiles is by these feeding miracles and this, uh, this, all these the, the, the two, two, two big miracles that we, we, we saw just now. It's prompted by the Christ, the kind of person that most Jews would have written off for three reasons. She was a Gentile, she was a Canaanite, she was a woman. But Jesus didn't dismiss her. He listened to her. The fact that he didn't answer her at first and the fact that he affirmed that his primary mission to Israel didn't mean he didn't consider what she had to say. She asked for crumbs 
he gave her what she asked for. Not only did he heal her daughter, he went to heal all these many Gentile people. So friends, let's not be like the disciples and, and write anyone off. For Jesus will love and accept anyone who comes to him in humility and faith. And God uses the most unlikely people to advance his kingdom. The sixth thing we see is how Jesus is both committed to his mission, yet compassionate enough to be flexible. Did you notice that? The Gentiles, they were not his focus in his earthly mission, and yet in love and compassion he included them as well. Healed them and he fed them. And yet he didn't do it in a way that jeopardized the plan. He did it in a way that's fully consonant with it and foreshadowed its fulfillment. And he did it out of compassion for people in need. And there are parallels, aren't there, for our mission today? At the end of Matthew's gospel, the disciples are sent into all the world with a, with a message of the kingdom. They're told to make disciples of all the nations. That was their charge inherited by us now. And that's our main goal, evangelism and discipleship. And we mustn't let anything distract us from that plan. Must be very clear about that. And yet as we go, we are to be compassionate like Jesus. And with the love of Jesus, we feed the hungry and heal the sick and help the poor and do all kinds of other good things. Things that are good and right because they reflect the love of God. They are good works. They are fruit of mission. They are godly things we do in love and compassion. But as good as they are, they are not the charge itself. We must never fall into the trap of equating them with our charge. Because if we do, then we'll forget what we're set for in the first place. And we think all that we're meant to do is works of mercy. Like Jesus, we must be very clear on our job. And like Jesus, we must be compassionate and flexible as we do it. But the final and most important point here is that Jesus is the Savior of all who have faith in him, both Jew and Gentile. And that would have been the biggest surprise of all to the people of his day. Now, at one level, it shouldn't have been, because God had been giving hints about this throughout the whole Old Testament. But it was. And later on, when the Gentiles were doors were open for all the Gentiles to come into God's kingdom, Apostle Paul writes this to the Gentiles in Ephesus. Remember at one time, you were Gentiles, you Gentiles in the flesh, you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now, now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Jesus has now died for our sins and risen again. And if we have faith in Jesus and the death of Jesus reconciles us to God, whether we are Jew or Gentile, which is why at the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus sends out his disciples after his death and resurrection. He sends out disciples to make disciples of all nations. And those who have faith, like the Canaanite woman, who throw themselves at his mercy, are included in his kingdom. And we don't just get the crumbs anymore. We've been given full adoption as sons, full citizenship of his kingdom. We were just as unworthy as we were before. God was under no obligation to save us, but he did. And so Paul goes on to say in Ephesians 2.19, So you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God.
And so brothers and sisters, no matter what race, no matter what background, no, 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 matter, no matter what, if we have faith in Jesus, then like this woman, we belong. Let no one tell you that you don't. Because of your race, your background, your family, your socioeconomic state, whatever. If you are in Christ, if you trust in Him, you are one of His people. And what our passage today foreshadowed is now fulfilled as the nations come to Jesus, to King Jesus. And as God's people, Jew and Gentile together, we look forward to the day when we will stand before Him in glory at that great feast to enjoy him and each other in perfected relations and forever to glorify the God of Israel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy to us in Christ. Thank you for washing us clean and making us one of your people. We had no claim on you. Indeed, we were not worthy to eat even the crumbs under your table. But you had mercy on us. You forgave us our sins through the death of Jesus on our behalf. You brought us into the kingdom of your risen Son. Please help us never to take that for granted. So always be grateful to you. May we always have hearts that are humble before you. And we always also have hearts like Jesus, crystal clear about our mission, but compassionate enough to be flexible. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.